The Startup to Scale Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpina Search, Europe's premier talent search firm, dedicated to helping technology startups and scale-ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann. Sampo Parkinen is the CEO and founder at Revive, whose SaaS platform uses AI, AR, computer vision, to help brands and retailers like Number 7 and Superdrug personalize the customer experience and also to build long-term customer relationships across the skin, beauty, health, and wellness market. So Sampo, welcome to this week's show. Thanks, Gary. Thanks for having me. Now let's go back a, a few years. How did you and why did you become a tech entrepreneur? Well, that's a long story. Uh, first of all, I mean, myself and our co-founders, um, you know, we, we had a previous you know, technology company. It was also retail, uh, retail technology that was acquired back in, you know, back in 2013. Gosh, that's nine years ago. And really, that was a company that we built sort of straight out of college, to be honest. So, so you could say I've I've never re- really had a job. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky guy. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Lucky or unlucky, depends who you talk to. <laughs> but um, I've sort of been a technology entrepreneur um, all my life. But but the uh, but the current company, Revive, we we started uh, back in 2016 after we had uh, sort of finished our earnouts at at the uh, the the choir of our last company. And as you mentioned, Revive is your second scale up. How have you yourself scaled as an entrepreneur and a business leader you know, during these two separate entrepreneurial journeys? I mean, the first one, which was a company called Rapid Blue Solutions, it didn't really go too far. I mean, it was really an early stage M&A deal. There wasn't really a lot of scaling up that had to happen, to be fair. It was all hands on deck sort of execution and, and, and trying to find product market fit. Now. You know, one of the one of the crazy things is that you know I I, I then I spent a few years you know I'm, I'm from Finland yeah, that's where I'm based today but then I I moved on and ran out to, uh, to Chicago and I spent a couple years in Chicago and it's funny because you know the the things that I learned whilst at a company called Chopper Track which acquired uh, Rapid Blue those were the things that ultimately sort of enable me today to to scale up as an entrepreneur and as a leader so so the things that I learned there. By the way, things that I didn't appreciate at the time, not enough at least. I was thinking to myself that I'm 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 not learning, but it turns out it was a whole different type of learning that I just didn't understand at the time. I was maybe a bit too too naive and too eager to be the early stage startup entrepreneur I was. But I think first of all, scaling is the hardest thing to do as an entrepreneur, right? When you start from scratch and you know you you're basically in charge of everything. I mean, does there is no hat in the company that you don't wear as an entrepreneur? And, you know, you have to figure it all out and you have to be hands-on executional for, for, for everything. And going from that, which you, you use a sports analogy, you're a player, you know, going from that to being a, you know, a coach, that's sort of challenging enough because then you're basically sort of, you, you, you have to make sure that, you know, you are giving direction to other people who execute. And the faster you grow, that's only a, a fleeting moment because then you suddenly you're a manager. So then you are giving direction to people who give direction. You know, at the end, you know, you're, you're going to end up, uh, you know, depending on how far the company goes as almost like the commissioner of the league. And that's a really tough transition, both from your individual ability as well as your willingness. Because I think those are, those are, when it comes to scaling, those are kind of the two dimensions I look at. I look at, you know, 
do you want to take the next step? And do you have the abilities? Do you, are you able to learn quickly enough to develop those abilities to be that leader on the sort of next stage of growth? So it's probably one of the hardest things about entrepreneurship. So have you had a mentor or a personal coach who's helped you to evolve? So I think multiple sort of unofficial personal coaches. And I think that's part of, that is, I would, that's something I would recommend to, to every sort of tech entrepreneur is like, get a mentor of, of, of any kind, really. I think that sort of helped me tremendously. I'm also a, a, an avid listener of a lot of, you know, startup growth company podcasts. I, I basically just, I gobble them up. You know, every day I'm, I'm I'm jogging. I'm the gym. I'm going to to bed. I just listen to to uh, these sort of tech podcasts because there's a lot of great lessons and, and tidbits for scaling um, in, in a lot of those. So that's the method that I've um, I've I've used. And when we last spoke, you mentioned the power focus. So in a way, switching your mindset from saying yes to everything, which you need to do when you're trying to establish product market fit for your business to, to actually say no to most things uh, which you've realized you had to do when when you came close to to burnout and i myself i've also come close to burnout on a, on a couple of occasions including last year when when i saved myself by by learning how to meditate and also by going completely off grid at weekends so i'd love to hear more about this concept of power focus, how you came to realize it was time for personal and business reasons to shift your focus. Yeah, I think, I mean, that, that's an interesting one because, because like you mentioned, like in the, in the early days, let's say, you know, you're building a company, it's pre-product market fit. You've got really one goal, which is product market fit. And you don't know where that's going to come from. So you basically have to say no to a lot of things because you're doing a lot of experimentation. Now, once you achieve that, you know, you basically have to shift the focus of the entire company and your own focus, because basically all of a sudden you've got product market fit. So you realize actually people are buying, you know, we've got customers, this thing is working. So then I, I always like to use the analogy of if anyone ever remembers the time before COVID, you know, I, I think it was like January 2020 and Australia was, was in flames. You know, there were like 600 bushfires going around. And once you're past product market fit, you kind of see as an entrepreneur, you see all these bushfires and, and you're kind of like, okay, well, you know what? I can't put them all out. I don't need to put them all out. I need to meticulously figure out which one of these bushfires is going to, you know, burn down the Sydney Opera House and which one I can just like let fizzle out and die. Or even if they burn until perpetuity, I will not care. And I think that's like a mindset shift that you have to, to make because you go from, not enough opportunities to too many opportunities. And I think that's part of the sort of entrepreneurial psyche is if you're, the longer you stay in that sort of early stage, really early stage, I mean, I consider us to be early as a company today, but but really early stage pre-product market fit, the more accustomed you do to, you get to basically just trying everything. Then suddenly it shifts. And part of the reason burnout happens and part of the reason it almost happened to me is, I was still trying all those opportunities. I just saw opportunity everywhere. And I was like, whoa, like I've never seen this much opportunity in my life. Now I get to grab it all. Otherwise, you know, I'm going to lose out. And pretty quickly you recognize that you wish 
when you start wishing that, you know, days were 48 hours instead of 24 and you know, you start recognizing that, you know, it doesn't matter if you sleep three or four hours a night, there's still far, far more to do than what you can physically handle if you were to do it all. It doesn't take a long time of, of, of you know, that type of a pattern for you to recognize, like, this is not sustainable, like something, something's got to change here. So I think that was one of the sort of uh, learning moments, um, you know, where where we sort of recognize that there is no other way. Like you, you just have to. And and by the way, partially it's also people around you. I mean, whether you know, for me it was certainly my wife, it's your colleagues, it's your co-founder saying, hey, you know what, time out. Like this is not gonna, this is not gonna work like this for very much longer. So yeah. And you use the phrase product market fit in a sense that it's a specific moment in in time so i just wondered if there was a situation a time um, a kind of milestone when you were able to say you and your leadership team hey we've now got product market fit or was it more of an evolution over a series of you know market signals when you were able to say we've reached this point I would say, you know, it isn't, you know, it is an evolution. Like people always talk about it as a sort of, you know, point in time, like, and and it's the reason people talk about it as a point in time. And it's like, it's kind of this dividing point in a company's life cycle. Now, the reality is that it's not something that, you know, goes on and off like this. It is an evolution, right? So you do, so you'll do experiments before that, you know, the focus is on, you know, doing experiments, iterating, understanding your customers, why they buy, why they don't buy, what are the problems associated they're looking to solve, and then gradually building an offering and a product to, to meet those needs. Now, I think once when you really start recognizing that you have product market fit is when a couple of things happens. You know, one of the things is that that basically, you know, you start getting customers coming to you and asking for the stuff that you have. And you go, hold on. How did you even find out about us? That's one point. So you recognize at least, you know, you're communicating around the right stuff. You know, then I think the second point is that, you know, you you are able to do sort of operational experiments that don't end up in disaster. So you're able to double your pricing, for example, or triple your pricing. And all of a sudden you realize that customers are not going away. In fact, they're buying more and you just doubled your pricing. And you're like, hold on. There's some serious value here that we may have, you know, even underestimated. You're able to go from like what we did, for example, you know, in the very early days, we started with small and medium-sized companies, very much so. And and the reason for that was that I felt that I could actually get to have conversations with the CEO and really understand what are the pain points from of their businesses. I couldn't do that off the bat with Fortune 500 companies. I wish, but, you know, just not going to happen. So, so that was the reason we started from those sort of smaller and medium sized companies. And, and then, you know, at some point we recognized we can win some enterprise business as well, which for me was kind of like, huh, that's interesting. Like, so, so that is interesting. So these small, medium sized companies, you know, maybe they didn't have an abundance of options back then when, when they were looking at this type of technology. So, you know, maybe even if the product wouldn't have been that great, you know, they still might've bought, but the fact that with that same product, we were able to also win enterprise business for me, that was like, huh, there's, 
there's clearly something something there and 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 usually you know you also don't have the I guess the second thing is, you know, to, to your point of, you know, did we have a sort of leadership team discussion around now we've got product market fit? Not really, because the mo- by the time that you recognize it, you're so busy getting your entire organization together just to support and then serve those customers that you don't even have a, this, you know, time for that dialogue. You're like, whoa, now it's it's go time. You didn't have your, hey, today's our product market fit celebration day that that just went that just passed you by as you were yeah and i think it often does right i think it often does like it's maybe if you have time for that discussion maybe you don't have product market fit (laughs) good point so why is now the right time for the world to embrace health and beauty customer experience platforms and also is that your business vision or are you also looking at other markets where you can go out and conquer i don't know the the fashion sector customer experience platform market or or other related sectors yeah so so that's interesting i would i would actually start from the the the, the notion that you know the what's the sort of underlying transformation or revolution you could even call it that we're that we're witnessing which is not exclusive to skin health beauty and wellness so we as a company are very much today focused around helping you know brands and retailers provide a personalized brand experience for skin health beauty and wellness from the initial interaction the consumer has with the brand all the way to that consumer becoming a loyal brand advocate uh, and everything in between so throughout the entire consumer journey but the revolution that that we're witnessing is much more broad and it's it's related to overall commerce and it's the sort of revolution from moving from sort of transaction centric transaction driven commerce into relationship driven commerce that model or that sort of shift which has started from the consumer and what the consumer expects from brands from retailers from wherever they they shop that is fundamentally going to transform how commerce works. So it's not about having a trigger, having an ad, getting the consumer in store, getting them to buy something and then starting to establish a relationship, you know, retargeting, remarketing, getting them to your loyalty program. That's the old model. Now, the new model is let's build a community, let's build a relationship, let's build a dialogue. And then because of that trust, because of that relationship, let's get the consumer to buy something at some point of that journey, and then let's continue to build on that. So that sort of relationship at the center of how commerce happens, that's a much more fundamental shift. Now, the reason that we're witnessing that first in skin health, beauty, and wellness is because those categories in the minds of the consumer when it comes to commerce are probably the most personal product categories you could imagine. And, and therefore, you know, if you're buying a product or service that is highly personal, the value of that relationship, that trust that you can build between yourself and whoever you're buying you from, whether it's your favorite retailer or brand or whoever, that becomes becomes a, a really sort of, I would say, a, a um, an invaluable differentiator between you know you as a brand and then your your competitors. So I think that's why we're witnessing this transformation first, and that's why the time is now, particularly in skin health, beauty, and wellness. Now, but to answer your other question. I think this transformation is going to impact the whole of of commerce, the whole of retail. And I think all brands, whether they are doing, you know, beauty, fashion, accessories, uh, whether they're, you know, doing furniture, they have to adopt. It's just a 
you know, it's just a matter of time. So yeah, right now we are very much focused on skin health, beauty and wellness because there's a lot to do there. But I think that underlying transformation is going to happen elsewhere as well. Tell me a little bit about the culture that you're building at Revive. You come across as someone who's picked up a lot of influences from US culture, from your time in Chicago. Um, you obviously have the Northern European heritage. Are you blending those two in the way you're building the culture at Revive? Are you creating something that's quite unique? So we try, right? We, we certainly try to uh, blend the two. I think the northern or scandinavian um you know sort of heritage that 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 comes across is is where we try to sort of build on the notions of sort of directness and and sort of honesty and transparency uh, transparency and, and openness um and then the uh the north american influences come in the fact that you know how much we emphasize communication right you know both sort of in, in both you know, as internally as a team, as well as with the brand and retail partners that we that we work with. And also, I would say this notion of sort of proactivity, right? So so one of the things that, you know, you, you know, we all understand about American culture is that they are very, very driven, you know, proactive, very, very um, sort of active and, and, and driving forward. And, and those are some of the things that we try to uh, add into our culture as well. And what about the emotional side of things that so many people have experienced during the pandemic and, and now what's happening not a million miles away from where you're sitting in um, Ukraine. How are you helping people you know, in a distributed workforce to cope with the, the emotional stresses and strains of the kind of crazy times we're all living through? There's a couple of aspects to that, right? So I think the first thing that you mentioned is that we are a remotely distributed team. You know, yes, we have our quote unquote global headquarters in Helsinki. We have our North American headquarters in Chicago, but we've got, you know, we've got a product development sort of center of excellence down in Valencia in Spain, but by and large, we're, we're very much remotely distributed. So I think that poses a, a, a particular challenge in these types of circumstances, you know, whether it is something like COVID, whether it's something, you know, whether it is a, a war. So I think the first thing that, um, that, you know, we have to do as a, as a company is we have to basically sort of set the standard, which is, which is that, you know, we, we talk about, we recognize that these things are going on. We recognize openly that, Hey, you know what, these things actually can have an impact on you as every, every single individual in the company. And that's fine. Like, that's okay. Like, let's recognize it that it's fine if you are feeling whatever emotions you're feeling because of these things. Like, that's the first thing. Like, let's recognize that we're all human beings. We're not, we're not machines here. The second thing is, you know, whatever assistance that you're able to provide as a company, you know, you should do that. Like, be decent to your, your people about this. So, so for example, we've got both for COVID as well as the war in Ukraine, because we do have a, a lot of people in Europe we have uh, services of psychologists that you can access, you know, on the on the company, you know, for the war in Ukraine, you know, we even set up a program where, you know, if you as an employee, you want to donate a certain amount of money to whatever cause in support of, you know, Ukraine, we're going to match that donation up to a sort of particular cap. As a company, you have to do these types of things. And in my mind, it's just Companies sometimes come off as like faceless entities, but ultimately, like there are people in charge. Like companies don't have to be faceless sort of entities. Like it's, you, you know, you have to show that sort of human side of things and, and and kind of also be 
be uh, be vulnerable yourself and be exposed yourself as well. It's like I'd be lying if I'd said that you know COVID and you know the war in Ukraine and these types of things haven't had an impact on myself personally. Of course they have. You know I'd be lying if if I said that they wouldn't. So that's just I think the first step. And then you know I think that just the key thing is is allow people to talk about them. You know, first of all, like you, you as a leader, you have to proactively bring them up. Then you allow people to talk about them and you provide whatever types of support that you can to people in and around these things. Because, again, unfortunately, these are not things that are in our control, but, you know, we, we just have to uh, make the best out of it. And also to get everyone feeling as if they're part of a team with a common, a common goal, common vision, common culture. Are you bringing everyone together maybe once or twice a year, finding some exotic location and bringing the entire company together for a few days or maybe even a week? COVID has sort of, let's say, sort of shifted those plans a bit. We do have an upcoming oil company summit, um, you know, coming up later this spring or early summer. And we did have a plan to do that earlier already as well. Right now, we've simply had you know, certain teams come together. So we've had our product and development team sort of come together in, in one location. We've got our computer vision team, you know, sort of come together. They were actually all in Helsinki last week and, and this week as well. So so we do these types of things. Because of COVID, we haven't gotten to do it on a full company scale yet, but we're certainly getting to that uh, later this spring as well. So so we've got we've got plans around that, definitely. Good. I'm sure everyone will enjoy enjoy that. What's your vision for Revive? I mean, we touched upon earlier on that you see this market isn't just about healthcare, skincare, beauty, etc. It's the whole e-commerce market potentially could benefit from your kind of offering. So if you look ahead three, four, five years from now, how will Revive evolve during that time, what what are your aspirations for the business? Yeah, so again, today we're very much focused on skin health, beauty, and wellness. But but I think overall, I think the way you win as a brand or the way you win as a retailer, it is going to be down to the brand experience that you deliver to your audience. Like that's going to be at the center of you know you winning the hearts and minds and ultimately wallets. But in that order, by the way, hearts and minds first, then wallets, not the other way around, of consumers and. That is very much our vision, because if that becomes true, you as a brand or retailer, you're going to need a platform upon which you build that brand experience. And that's basically our vision is to become that platform. So, you know, kind of like um, I'll take an analogy to to um, Shopify. You still today have the choice of building an e-commerce site from scratch. But the, the, the bigger e-commerce becomes and the more e-commerce gets sort of uh, prevalence, the more and more companies are going to need a platform like Shopify upon which they build their e-commerce experience for the consumer. And I think for us, this is not limited to e-commerce. This is about the entire brand experience, you know, how you treat the consumer, what value you deliver to the consumer, what offerings, products, services you suggest to the consumer, how do you get the consumer to provide zero party data for you that you can use in marketing, retargeting, you know, loyalty programs. So this is really about the entire brand experience. Like what does that look and feel like? And that should not be a 
disparate, you know, a bit of technology here and a bit of technology over here and an isolated little spot solution over there, but it should be an entire platform that allows you to build that brand experience. And, and that's really our, our, our vision. So starting from skin health, beauty and wellness, because we know there is a dire need and we've seen that, um, and that dire need is today. If my vision and my, my gut holds true, then that's certainly going to expand to other verticals of commerce as well. And that sounds like a real, a real unicorn opportunity for growth for Aviv. One final topic I'd love to explore with you. Who are the entrepreneurs and business leaders who've inspired you? Who do you admire and why? Oh, wow. There's obviously a few. So I think there's a couple ones that I, that I, um, that I sort of really, really look up to. I think one of them, there's many, many books about this, but, but one of them is, is, um, is he's no longer a CEO, but is, is, is Ben Horowitz. Um, you know, I, I've read both of his, both of his books multiple, multiple, multiple times. So, so the hard thing about hard things and, and what you've got you here uh, won't get you there. So I think he's someone that's, that in his past just went through some incredible things as a, as a, as a first as a product manager, you know, working for Mark Andreessen, and then as a, as a CEO of, of Opsware and LoudCloud. I think some of the ways in which he handled the things that he had to go through were just, just remarkable, right? Really, really remarkable. So that's, that's one of the ones. Obviously, he's not a CEO anymore, so I can't sort of follow him in that capacity. But he's definitely, um, definitely one. I would also say, um, I guess if I had to, if I had to pick another one, I would also probably take the CEO of, of a company called Snowflake, Frank Slootman. Not sure if that's the right way to pronounce his last name, but I think he, what he's done, he's he also has a book, right? So this is this is where my avid podcasting and and audiobook listening comes into play, but. What I think he's done, and he's done this now multiple times, right? So he he was not the founder of of um, of Snowflake. He he joined in, um, you know, a few years ago, I think, before COVID, as the as the CEO. But I think you know he's really built companies, you know, time and time and time again, and and brought them to you know an IPO, you know, multi billion dollar enterprise value, and. I mean, what he just seems to do, and this is from industry to another vertical, to another company, to another, is just, it, it's, it's phenomenal, right? And, and like I said, you know, today he's the, uh, the CEO of, uh, of Snowflake, so. Well, hopefully you'll have the opportunity to grow your business to the same scale and success as Snowflake. I wish you and the, the team huge success over the next three, four years, and I'll be watching your journey with tremendous interest. Thank you. Definitely. Yeah, it's, it's certainly going to be interesting. And, and, you know, we're, like I said, we are early, we're only getting started. So it's a very exciting time to, uh, to, to be in this, uh, in this industry. Exactly. Thank you so much for joining me on the show, Sampo. Thanks for having me, Gary. Thanks a lot. This episode of the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan was brought to you by Alpina Search. Head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high-impact senior talent.